So, uh, you and your um, husband here on a little outback excursion? Oh, no, no. We're not married. In fact, we're, uh, we're here on a, a top uh, secret mission. Very, very hush-hush. Oh, gotta rescue that kid McLeach nabbed, eh? Why, that's right. How did you know? You'll find it's tough to keep secrets in the outback, miss. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching The Rescuers Down Under from 1990, directed by Hendel Batoy and Mike Gabriel. It was written by Jim Cox, Carrie Kirkpatrick, Byron Simpson, and Joe Ranft. That's the animation screenplay. The story supervisor was Joe Ranft, and the suggested by characters created by Marjorie Sharp. What does that mean? Oh, I have no idea. I copied that straight from IMDb. Okay. I just wanted to give everybody the proper due. So Marjorie Sharp's title role in the movie was suggested by characters created by. Yeah. No idea what that means. I can't help but wonder if whoever put that in IMDb typoed. Anyway, the movie stars Bob Newhart as Bernard, Ava Gabor as Miss Bianca, and John Candy as Wilbur the Albatross. The short summary says the RAS agents Miss Bianca and Bernard race to Australia to save a little boy and a rare golden eagle from a murderous poacher. Why are we watching this? Nostalgia. (laughs) Nostalgia is a commodity that we are willing to trade on. Okay, well, we always watch a kid's movie at the tail end of every six hiatus movies that we do. And this time around... The suggestion that you made was The Rescuers Down Under. A, because it takes place in Australia. Mm -hmm. And B, for nostalgic reasons. Yes. I know that this will get asked on our Facebook page, so I will ask it now. Why aren't we watching Babe Pig in the City? I think we have no answer to that. Yeah. Because we chose this instead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have all of the time in the world (laughs) between now and whenever the next... Mad Max instance comes out. So I'm not worried about getting to it. (laughs) Okay. I don't believe that I saw this in the theaters because I would have been too young to be taken to a theater when this came out. Well, I hope so. I would like to think my parents have more respect for the people around them than that. So I probably first saw this on VHS tape. I definitely first saw this on VHS tape. I was prime age. This movie was for me. I was nine when this movie came out. But in the 90s, we weren't really a go-to-the-theater household. What we were was when Disney movies came out on video, my dad would buy them household. So I can guarantee that I saw it early on, but not in the theater early on. I'm pretty sure as a child, I saw this movie more than once. But I can't say that there's a lot I remember about it. We just watched the trailer, so obviously that's fresh in my mind. But other than that, there's not much. Before we watched the trailer, I could have told you a couple of memorable moments. I could not have told you what they were rescuing down under, (laughs) because I did not remember that at all. But having watched the trailer, I'm now remembering a lot more. Yeah. And the trailer really excited me. I can't wait to watch this movie. I am so happy. Well, I'm glad you're happy. That, (laughs) if for no other reason, makes it worth it. (laughs) I am not expecting to be disappointed by this. I am looking at this movie and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a good Disney movie. Because Disney has a crack team of writers and producers and most of the stuff they did was really good. So I'm not expecting to be disappointed at all. It's probably going to be real good. And I'm totally okay with that. I'm expecting to have a good time. I'm expecting to have fun. If I'm not mistaken, a little movie trivia nugget. If I'm not mistaken, this is the only sequel to a Disney movie to get a theatrical release. Really? And I've never seen the original. Yeah, I've never seen The Rescuers either. I didn't even know that this was a sequel to The Rescuers. I had never seen it. Honestly, I had never really heard of it. 
this was a standalone movie for me. Yeah, I'm definitely in that same boat. Like, even as a kid, I was not aware that it was a continuation of established characters. Mm -hmm. But, hey, what are you going to do? Now, this movie has a 6.9 out of 10 after 34,000 reviews. I feel like most of the ones that we've watched in this latest run have been the solid 6 to 7 out of 10 range. I think there is definitely an average of high 6. I think we're in good hands. So let's pause the conversation here. I'm going to play the trailer for everybody. We're going to go watch the movie. And when we come back, we will let you know what we thought about it. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 29th full-length animated motion picture. Australia. Mysterious. Untamed. And for a young boy named Cody and his magnificent golden eagle, it was a world of adventure and discovery. Fire! Until... They met the villain McLeach. That bird's gonna make me rich. An evil trapper who threatens to separate them forever. It's time you learned how to fish for crocs. No! But though hope is running out, a message is on the way. To the Rescue Aid Society. There has been a kidnapping in Australia. And two little heroes, Bernard and Bianca, are flying in. It's the rescuers in the most dangerous mission ever. We'll never make it! Cinch up your seatbelts, mates. Now, they're joining forces with their new friend Jake and his army of misguided mates. Howdy, howdy, howdy! Aw, oh, Frank, give it a rest. They're flying into action, riding into danger. Ah! <laughs> Missed! In the most breathtaking rescue mission ever. Ah! Hey, who killed the music? Oops. This holiday season, join Bernard, Bianca, Jake, and... Wilbur! In an adventure above the ordinary in the land down under. Walt Disney Pictures, The Rescuers Down Under. Throw another shrimp in a barbie, sports fans. Here we come! And we're back. Julia, what are your initial thoughts coming off of The Rescuers Down Under? My initial thoughts are that I was delighted by this movie but not quite as delighted as I thought I was going to be. There was a few moments that I can see that a child would find entertaining that I, as an adult, just found a little tedious. A little tedious. Nothing even that, like, really made the list for me. But just, you know, I'm an adult now. I'm not as delighted by children movies as I was as a child. You have different sensibilities now. Yeah. I'm not going to sit here and say that this is my favorite kids movie that we've watched for hiatus episodes because I don't necessarily want to say that I liked it better than Chicken Run, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely liked it better than Pocahontas or Happy Feet. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. There were some really fun circumstances and this is, I'm pretty sure, one of the shortest movies we've ever watched for a hiatus episode. At only 77 minutes, it does not overstay its welcome. Not at all. That runtime, I think, is good because there was a few times when I thought about how long we'd been watching the movie and I thought about how much time there was left. So the fact that it was only 77 was good. If it had been a 90-minute movie, I think it really would have detracted from the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Now, I looked up specifically how long a film needs to be in order for the Academy of Performing Arts to consider it a feature-length film. Mm -hmm. And the feature length is only 40 minutes. Oh, seriously? Seriously. You do oh. not even need to hit an hour to be considered for an Academy Award. Wow. So I guess anything under 40 minutes qualifies as a short film. But with Disney, I could see them busting out a 77-minute thing and calling it good. Yeah, yeah, They know their audience. That's something Disney is good at, is knowing their audience most of the time. <laughs> but I think if it had gone longer, if they had tried to shoehorn in more shenanigans, it definitely would have pulled away from the overall experience. So I am glad that they stuck to that runtime, because as I said before, it doesn't overstay its welcome. 
it sets it up, it puts it out, and you're done, and it doesn't let you get annoyed with it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we mentioned in the intro, this is the only Rescuer movie that we've ever really seen. And I feel like with Rescuers Down Under, you don't necessarily need that lead up of the first movie. And one of the main reasons for that is because when the movie actually starts, you don't start with the Rescuers proper. You start with Cody, the little Australian boy. This movie goes to great lengths to set up the scene ahead of time. Before Mm -hmm. we even know that this is a Rescuers movie, before the RAS is even involved, this kid's whole world is set up. Speaking of the world that it's set up, the opening shots of the film involve gliding along this landscape and it's a big old field of wildflowers and there's a bunch of standing rocks and wouldn't you know little cody's house is pretty much right next to ayer's rock so we are starting the second movie in a row off next to uluru yeah it did feel a little bit cliche those first few minutes they were trying so hard to make sure that we knew this movie was set in australia (laughs) Every quintessential, stereotypical Australian thing was in those first few minutes. So you get Ayers Rock, you've got the kid sneaking out of his house, the mom shouting about breakfast or something. He's running off into the bush to hang out with his woodland creatures. And let's see, you've got the kangaroo blowing the log like a didgeridoo. You've got the echidnas, you've got the kookaburras, you've got, I'm pretty sure wombats are chasing him. Like he's got a retinue, a sort of posse of animals that he hangs out with. And they call to him the didgeridoo was a signal that something was amiss. Mm -hmm. So he goes running off. Now, I have been playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons lately, and so I am in a mindset of character creation. And as I was watching Cody run through the woods, because his whole introduction scene of him running and getting these animals up into a group as he's going by, it's not dialogue heavy. This movie does not have a lot of spoken words, and so there's a lot of downtime where you're just watching it, and I'm sitting there thinking about it. And so I spent some time, and I drew up a character for Cody. If anyone is familiar with Dungeons & Dragons on YouTube, there's a guy called Tulak the Barbarian, and he does character creations, and he will usually take a character all the way to level 20. Cody is not level 20. At the best, he is level one, because the class he obviously is is a druid. He's very nature-based, and he doesn't exhibit any of the higher-level abilities of a druid, so putting him any higher than one would just be ridiculous. I mean, why would you even, right? I know, right? (laughs) So I guess if you want to play Cody in your next Dungeons & Dragons game, this is how I would build him. So using the standard point array, I'm going to throw 12 in strength, 13 dexterity, 14 constitution, 8 intelligence, 15 wisdom, 10 charisma. So I put a lot of points in wisdom and constitution because wisdom is the skill that dictates animal handling. We want to make every animal handling check that Cody makes to be as padded with bonuses as possible. And as we see in this movie, Cody is a very durable kid. He gets knocked around a lot and he keeps running because, I mean, kids are made of rubber. So Cody's obviously a human, but instead of doing the standard human thing where all of the attributes get a plus one, we're going to go variant human. That way we can focus specifically on boosting wisdom and constitution, but Aside from the attribute boosts, we also get to pick a feat and a skill proficiency. So we're going to grab the acrobatics proficiency so that way he can scramble up over rocks, trees, climb cliffs, and all of that other stuff. And then for a feat, we're going to get animal handler because it boosts wisdom even further. And animal handler, if there's a friendly creature within 60 feet of you, you can command it to do something. So there are your woodland creatures right there, just in the racial bonus. For background, there's nothing specifically for Outbacker, but there is a background called Outlander, which gives you survival and athletic proficiencies. So if you're running over rough terrain or you need to survive in the Outback, you get bonuses there. But the Outlander background also gives you the Wanderer feature, which gives you excellent memory when it comes to maps and geography. So if you are flying on the back of an eagle and it brings you to its nest, you have perfect memory when it comes to getting back to that nest, even though you were 
going through all these fantastic maneuvers to get there. Moving into class. Now, like I said, Cody is a level one druid. He does not exhibit anything from level two onward. So no wild shape. He doesn't transform into any animals or anything like that. But the nice thing about level one druids is they get to pick two proficiencies. So we'll double up on animal handling. The animal handler feat basically takes that bonus and multiplies it by two. So he's double effective at doing animal stuff. And also as a level one druid, he gets to speak the secret language of the druids, which may or may not sound like a kangaroo blowing into a log to sound like a didgeridoo. Finally, first level druids get spellcasting. So you get two cantrips and two first level spells. For cantrips, we're going to get guidance and mending. Guidance lets you give bonuses to other characters for attribute skill checks because Cody just lets the animals do everything. And we're also going to pick up the mending cantrip because joining things together and repairing objects. He's a crafty kid. He put together that stick thing. So that's what mending will do. And then for the actual first level spells, we're going to go with speak with animals because he does, obviously. And for the second first level spell, we're going to go with beast bond, which lets you telepathically communicate with a friendly or charmed creature because you get the sense as he's flying around with the eagle that they have some sort of beast bond. Yeah, they kind of have to. Yeah. To accomplish the things that they do. Yeah. Honestly, him talking to the animals was what set me off. Like, I wasn't thinking about D&D until he started talking to that kangaroo. (laughs) And the kangaroo started talking back. I was like, wait a second. (laughs) I don't play D&D. I don't know much about D&D other than you telling me, like, what you guys did in your session tonight sort of stuff. But that sounds like a really great setup. And I find that exciting because we got to know Cody as this kid who is very capable and playing that D&D character lets you imagine what his future is like. Yeah. And that's fun. I really liked Cody as a protagonist because he wasn't one of those annoying kids. He had a deep and abiding love for nature and that came across well in his character and it didn't hammer you over the head with it. At the end of the movie, I was... Thinking a lot about what the rescuers actually did for the plot <laughs> yeah, and what they actually accomplished in their mission. Their mission was to go down there and rescue Cody. Despite what the synopsis says, they didn't know anything about an eagle. They weren't there for the eagle. They were there to rescue Cody. And in the end, they did rescue Cody, but Cody did a lot for himself. Yeah. He was resourceful. Yeah. I think that was mostly highlighted in the scene where he was locked in the room with all the poached animals. Yeah, it never even occurred to him to not try and get out. Everybody else, all of the other animals were like, gosh, we're just here, sitting here, and we're only going to leave as purses and belts and coats. And Cody was like, no, we're going to (laughs) escape right now. We're going to figure this out right now. Yeah, I gave Cody an 8 in intelligence, which technically gives him a minus 1 to his modifiers. But intelligence and wisdom are two different things. Like, intelligence is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing that you don't put tomato in fruit salad. I like that distinction, because Cody says, we have to escape. But it wasn't Cody that came up with the idea of how. It was the little lizard guy. What was his name? Frank. Frank. It was Frank who came up with the idea to get the keys. He's also the one who used his tail to unlock the door. Mm -hmm. So Cody's not necessarily an idea guy. So I like you adding the whole animal handling and the stuff like that because he uses his resources and the animals around him who he's very friendly and sympathetic and supporting of have great ideas. Yeah. And he's like, okay, we're going to do that. I think if there's one downside to the runtime of this movie, it's that you don't get a lot of closure when it comes to the animals that Cody runs across. Like his woodland creatures at the beginning of the movie never come back into the story. They call him to adventure and then he leaves them behind. The animals in the room where McLeach was keeping all of his poached animals, they are left behind. They never take the time to go back and liberate those creatures. You would hope that they would because they have the time to go do it, but they never specifically head back there and free them. Yeah, I agree. Seeing those things would have, yes, padded the runtime, but 
I don't think for the better. I don't think we needed to see those things. We know enough about Cody to be able to safely assume that he probably told the Rangers where McLeach's hideout was. Yeah. And they went and took care of things. And his woodland friends that are his local friends, they're still his friends. Mm -hmm. And he's going to continue having adventures with them. So because we got such a good idea of the type of kid Cody is, we can assume those things about the storylines that didn't get wrapped up. I just realized something. Cody's mom is in for one heck of a shock. Yeah. Because the Rangers came to her door with Cody's torn up backpack that they fished out of the Crocodile River. And she was standing there in the doorway with the radio behind her and the Ranger in front of her. The Ranger's handing her the backpack. The radio's like, oh, yeah, that boy's dead. That was really something. The timing on that, that was pretty bad. Like, in America, we have laws on that. You can't do that. You can't announce to the public that the kid is dead before the mother knows that the kid is dead. The family is always informed first. Right. And then they release the information to the public. Yeah. So, and of course, they had to do that. Like, it was an expositional thing. Right. They got to explain why the rangers aren't still hunting. Yeah. Although, I actually don't think they needed to. Because McLeach sets it up. He throws the bag into the crocodiles and says, oh, no, another victim of the crocodiles. Your mother's going to be so devastated or something like that. And then if the scene where the ranger gives the mother the backpack had been silent, I think we would have come to the same conclusion. But that's us as adults. We've been paying attention. This movie is for kids. Right. Sometimes you need to throw in that dialogue just to make sure it's not just that she's sad that her boy is out there. We need to know that she thinks that she has literally lost her child, that her only son, assumingly, has been consumed by crocodiles in some sort of freak woodland accident. Yeah. Like, we need that tragedy to make this movie darker, I guess. (laughs) I guess so, because it does make the movie dark. And realistically, for kids, did we need to make that distinction? Knowing that the mother thinks Cody is dead, what does that do for the story? Does it make it more urgent that Cody gets out? No, she's not part of the story. We don't know her. The only thing we know about her is that she wanted to feed her kid a good breakfast before he ran outside for the day. That's all we know. You know what it does is it removes the rangers as a force that could potentially save him. Before the rangers think that Cody is dead, there is always the possibility that an adult human could save Cody. This is true. This is true. By including the scene where they give up the search and spelling it out, yeah, it puts extra onus on Bernard and Bianca to save this kid. I think that point might have been driven home better, that danger of the rangers finding Cody and McLeach first is if there would have been a close call. But there were no close calls. There were no other humans in this movie. It was just Cody and McLeach and a silhouette of the mom. Like, she really didn't I think we saw the lower two-thirds of her face. Every other adult was shot from the back. Yeah. So maybe if there was a moment of a close call. But yeah, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) So speaking of Cody and... When he gets abducted by McLeach, he is a very outspoken child. And he says, you're a poacher. I know you're a poacher. And I'm going to tell the rangers on you. And you're going to get in big trouble. It's like Like, painfully obvious what McLeach is. And Cody is not fooled. Yeah, because he's a precocious little kid. McLeach's response is over the top sarcasm. It is wonderful. And I am here for it. It was magical. He's like, oh, no, don't call the rangers. What am I going to do with the rangers? Which is just so perfect because it's this adult man who lives his life in danger constantly of the rangers, and he doesn't care. He's been flaunting the law for who knows how long. And, yeah, a kid threatening him with law enforcement, there's no way he's going to be scared of that. Yeah, and his response is just so beautiful. I love it. McLeach is an interesting villain. Yeah. I enjoy that he's not hiding what he is. Mm -hmm. Like, he knows he's the villain of this story. Yeah, he's a man who enjoys what he does. He's fully buying into the whole, if you love what you do, you never have to work a day in your life mentality. Something also interesting about him 
is that he is a very real world villain. This scenario that this whole movie is about, it actually happens. Oh, yeah. It's very believable. Yeah. Like, there are professional poachers, plenty of them, in Australia, all over the whole world. And if you cross them, there are some of them who are violent enough that you are risking your life if you cross them. Yeah. They're just criminals. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me about McLeach is that he doesn't have an Australian accent, which struck me as odd watching it as an adult. Because he is a guy living out in the middle of the outback amongst a bunch of abandoned opal mines, you would think that he would have an accent. Every other human character in this movie has an Australian accent. Cody's accent is pretty mild. Yeah, but it, it does, is there. It is there. It does like pop out sometimes. But it took me a little while to hear it when he first started talking. When I think about McLeach's lack of accent, it doesn't really bother me just because they got George C. Scott to voice the character. They got General Patton to voice the bad guy in this movie. <laughs> like, he never stands on a hill and says, Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book in this movie. But that's the energy that he's putting off. Absolutely. Considering the accent situation, do you think he is American? McLeach, oh, the character. Absolutely. He is definitely an American expat living in Australia doing crime. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm reading on the Disney fandom wiki that alternative actors that they considered for this character included Brian Brown, Clint Eastwood, John Mahoney, Jack Palance, Mandy Patinkin, and Paul Hogan. The Crocodile Dundee himself. Yeah, I was going to say that this character does seem like a bad version, the evil version <laughs> of Crocodile Dundee. The mirror universe Crocodile Dundee. Yes. Where he doesn't hold out his fingers and hypnotize the water buffalo, he just shoots it. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because the mouse Jake, he is supposed to be a Crocodile Dundee character. I had to look up who was the voice of Jake because I thought it was Brian Brown. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that he was on the shortlist for McLeach. Many of those names, I think, would have done a fantastic job. But McLeach as is, is perfect. I'm very glad they didn't get Clint Eastwood because I don't look at Eastwood and say, oh, yes, that is a man whose sole feature I would love in a movie is his voice. Yeah. He's more of a physical presence. Yes, I agree. <laughs> But yeah, another thing about McLeach, according to the Disney fandom, is that his willingness to murder Cody makes him one of the darkest Disney villains in all of the movies because he's literally willing to drop Cody into alligator-infested waters with no remorse. And that level of direct premeditated murder is kind of rare. Like, yeah, you have villains that threaten your characters, but to be the one to press the button to murder the main character is not something you see in every movie. Right. So I'm thinking about Disney villains. The scariest one that I think of is Maleficent. Just her visuals are very dark mm -hmm. and very brooding. She never had an intention of killing Aurora. Yeah, she didn't want Aurora dead. She wanted Aurora locked away in a tower under a magical spell because she was being spiteful. Yeah. She wasn't being murderous. If anything, the prince in that story is the one who commits murder. Well, it's not murder. All right, self-defense, I guess. Yeah. Hey, in this day and age, you have to make the distinction. You really do. And then we also have a villain like Scar who kind of goes both ways. He is directly responsible for the death of Mufasa, mm -hmm. but he is indirectly trying to kill Simba. Yeah. He's not going to take any direct action, but he does, basically, he gets Simba to banish himself. Yeah. Assuming that he will die out there, which he very nearly does. I think Scar's the closest facsimile, because he throws Mufasa down into the wildebeest in a similar way that McLeach is throwing Cody down into the crocodiles. They also have similar senses of humor. Yeah. Man, thank goodness they didn't get Jeremy Irons to voice McLeach, too. That would have been too much doubling up. They came out around the same time, didn't they? So Rescuers Down Under was 1990, and Lion King was in the early 90s, right? The Lion King was 1994. Oh, okay. Pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. 
And Jafar, he didn't want to kill anybody. No, no. He just wanted power. Yeah. <laughs> like, even when he had the opportunity to kill Aladdin the first time, he just sent him to the ends of the earth. It wasn't until Aladdin came back that he was like, all right, I guess I'm going to transform into a giant snake and eat you now. Yeah. I think what also gives McLeach extra clout as a villain is how he is such a real person. It's not fantastic at all. It's literally just a man kidnapping a child and then trying to murder that <laughs> child. And this movie does have fantastical elements. The animals talking thing talking is animals. the Disney element here and the worldwide network for the RAS. Oh my That gosh. is another fantastical element. But McLeach doesn't exhibit any of those. His animal doesn't talk to him. Joanna doesn't talk. So he's just a normal guy. Which I think makes him a bit more terrifying. Yeah. Because there could be a McLeach out there in the world right now, you know, trying to capture animals and murder children. Not that murdering children is a hobby of his, but you get the idea. Yeah. And McLeach, he'd been doing this for a while. I mean, he already had a big score. He got the male eagle, and now he wants the female eagle. And never before had he felt the need or encountered a human, therefore feeling the need to destroy a human. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was the fact that Cody knew he was a poacher that got him kidnapped. What got him kidnapped was the fact that he knew where the nest was. Yeah, if Cody didn't have that feather on him, McLeach probably would have just chased him off. Yeah, because as we know, he's not afraid of the rangers. Cody would have gone to the rangers and said, hey, there's a poacher out there. This is what he looks like. And they'll be like, yeah, we know about him. We try and track him. We can't find him. Okay, tracking McLeach. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. Shouldn't be that hard? Should not be difficult at all because McLeach, and I forgot about this before we sat down and watched this movie, and I am so glad that I rediscovered it. McLeach has a war rig. Absolutely. On the Disney wiki, they call it McLeach's Bushwhacker, but it is a huge vehicle with monster truck tires and a tread and a giant cage and a crane. Like This thing is... Not exactly built for war, unless you're considering a war on animals. Which he is waging. Right. And when that thing trundled its way through the forest, I was like, what the heck is that? And then I saw it and I was like, oh my God, look at that magnificence. It was really quite something. It was definitely, just like the war rig, it had a character all of its own. We spend a lot of time on it. Well, we spend a lot of time in the cage in the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Given who our POV characters are, they spend a lot of time in that cage. Yeah. But it is a magnificent, impressive machine. But the major downside of it is that it leaves these massive tracks. Yeah. Bernard, when he was following the tracks, had absolutely no problem finding the rig. Yeah. Easiest part of the movie. No challenge. So you would think that a Australian ranger would be able to follow said tracks through the desert to the abandoned opal mine that McLeach calls home. You know, something that just occurred to me, considering his sarcasm about the rangers being told about his presence, what if they already know and he's got them on a leash? Like he's paying them off? Yeah, like he's paying them off. Oh, I didn't even consider that. Because you're right. Take out the poacher part of it. If a ranger comes upon these gigantic set of tracks, they're going to follow the tracks. Like somebody is here with a vehicle that is too big and not allowed in this area. I'm going to follow them. Yeah. Well, maybe not just that the vehicle isn't allowed or something like that. But what is there to do as an outback ranger? Like if you've got time just out of sheer boredom, follow the tracks, see where they go. <laughs> I appreciate that you think that rangers don't have enough work to do, that there aren't enough poachers and lawbreakers out there to keep them busy. I'm assuming the outback is a big empty place, so I'm assuming they can have time to wander. <laughs> I mean, if they are hunting poachers specifically, they would follow for that reason also. Like, hey, these look like big tracked wheel tracks might belong to a poacher vehicle. Yeah. 
But yeah, you would think that someone would follow them. So I kind of like the idea that he's got them paid off. I'm definitely willing to go with you on that. Which is very sad. You hate to see any sort of enforcement organization doing something uncouth. Well, certainly, yes. Yeah. Without getting too topical. (laughs) Yes. You you hate to see it because it's very frustrating. But McLeach is also the kind of guy who you look at and you're like, oh, yeah, he would pay off the Rangers to leave him alone, Mm -hmm. to turn a blind eye. Especially if he's the kind of poacher that is poaching ultra-rare, assumedly high-profile, high-value targets. Yeah. Like these giant golden eagles. The eagles, real quick. I want to wanna talk about the eagles Marahute. super quick. In the real world, in my limited knowledge of endangered species and rare animals and whatnot, I would assume that both of those eagles would be tagged. And that that nest would be watched. Like monitored by monitored. a zoo or something like that? Yes. So, yeah. If they're so rare, I would assume that they would be known by authorities. Based on what I'm reading, Marahute was inspired by a couple of different creatures, including the wedge-tailed eagle, the white-bellied sea eagle, and probably most specifically, Hast's eagle which is technically native to New Zealand, or at least it was before it went extinct. Is that an instance of a creature creator just assuming that New Zealand and Australia are the same thing? Probably. Yikes. So the Hast's eagle went extinct somewhere around the year 1400. So it's not a modern thing at all. They were, let me see if I can find some statistics about these. Estimations of the Hast's eagle mass is somewhere around 25 pounds for males, 31 pounds for females. Let's see. Trying to find... Ah. They had a relatively short wingspan for their size. It is estimated the grown female typically spanned 8.5 feet wide, tip to tip, possibly up to 9.8 feet wide in a few cases. So, yeah, imagine an eagle with a 10-foot wingspan. And that's what the Hass Seagull was. It was a gigantic predator. And they talk about how it was probably the kind of thing that would hunt early man. Yikes. Yeah. So the other variations of eagle are more contemporary. Like the wedge-tailed eagle is specifically native to Australia. The wedge-tailed eagle has an average wingspan of about 9 feet 4 inches. And from beak to tail averages about three and a half feet. The white-bellied sea eagle has a wingspan of up to 7.2 feet and weighs somewhere in the ballpark of 10 pounds. So there are some big eagles down there in Australia. And they pretty much put those three varieties of large raptor, put them in a blender, and then pumped out this golden eagle marahute. All right. I think it's about time we talk about the titular characters of this movie being the rescuers who then go down under. Yeah. Because <laughs> they really are the B-plot of this film. Yeah, they are. The most interesting characters are not the title characters. So Bernard and Miss Bianca, they live in a world where there is mouse size equivalent of all sorts of things created using the detritus of humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's novel and ingenious and very silly, but fun. Some of the things that I noticed particularly was the candlelight at the table was a single Christmas bulb. Yeah. Like stuck up through the table. (laughs) And the chairs were wine bottle corks. Something that I question or bothered me or something to that effect was the pea soup thing. In the restaurant, the real, the human restaurant, a pea gets dropped on the floor and the grasshopper? Some sort of insect. Yeah, some sort of insect grabs it, hands it over and says, ooh, pea soup. Like, oh, I found a pea. We can have pea soup now. And so they cook it up and they serve it to somebody. Did that somebody order pea soup? I would certainly hope so. Or are they at the mercy of what they can steal from the humans? It's a very good question, because when you have a mouse restaurant hidden in the chandelier of an actual real restaurant, like, how does the 
chandelier kitchen handle that situation. There are waiters and there's a maitre d' in this chandelier restaurant. So you would assume that they would have tiny menus and tiny silverware and things like that. What struck me as odd about the micro scale of this world that Bernard and Bianca live in is how the ring that he had was just a regular ring miniaturized. Yeah. Like that diamond was like a speck. So the clothes that they wear, they're human-esque. Yeah. But they are a little different to suit a mouse body. Yeah, like Bernard has a little scally cap and a sweater. Yeah, but they're not wearing pants. And then Bianca has, I think it's like a beret or something. Yeah. Uh, a shawl. Can't remember. That she She's wraps wearing around a shawl. her. Yeah. But the ring is still just a normal ring. But a mouse hand would need something a little different. A ring, just a circular ring, isn't really going to fit great on a mouse finger. Plus, these mice are so ridiculously small. They are. And... The scale changes throughout the movie. Yeah. A la cats. But frankly, it didn't bother me in cats either. But it's not egregious. It's not super duper obvious. There were a few times when I was like, really? They're the same size as that insect? But, you know, what? it's fine. <laughs> One of the first interactions we get with Bernard and Bianca is that Bernard is trying to propose to her. Mm. And this is definitely... A place where if we had seen the rescuers, we would know the backstory. Right. We would have seen them, I'm assuming, in the first movie, that's where they're first paired up. Because Bernard is the USA representative in the RAS, and Bianca is the Hungary representative in the RAS. So they would get paired together and then grow together. But I don't think you necessarily need that when you watch this movie for the first time. Because, yeah, they're just two mice, and they work together. Yeah, and it's clear that they have a good relationship. Yeah. So go ahead and propose to her. But so, the circumstances of proposing, you were getting into that. Sorry. Yeah. It's a bit of comedy of errors that's happening here, where Bernard thinks Bianca knows what he's going to ask, and Bianca says, I know what you're going to talk about. I think it's a great idea. Let's go. She's talking about going to Australia to rescue Cody. He's talking about getting married. And so we have this clash, and it's very comedic. It's not my kind of comedy. I do not like comedy of communication. Yeah. It drives me bananas. I'm most in that of the same boat. Yeah. Most of the problems in the movie world can be solved by just communicating better. Like a shut up and listen situation? Yes. So I was a little worried that that's where we were going and I was going to have to groan. It got cleared up so quickly that the humor in it was able to stay. And I was able to find it humorous and I was able to enjoy it because they cleaned it up so quick. They did not let it linger. There was no embarrassing moments. Nobody besides Bernard thought that she had said yes to getting married. Mm -hmm. So there was no embarrassment. I really appreciated that. I think that was a brilliant little piece of writing. I really like how they put Bernard in these different situations where he's struggling to propose and then they introduce jake and jake is supposed to be a rival romantic thing but they don't go too far with it they don't beat it over the head that oh look how charming jake is compared to bernard and they don't spend a lot of time with bianca having to hem and haw about oh one versus the other and bernard is sitting there fuming every time jake gets close by it's a thing that's in the movie but it's not something that they hammer too ridiculously but I want to talk more about that later. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get on that later. It's my least favorite thing. <laughs> so this movie had a lot of side characters. You had the talking kangaroos. You had the mom. You had the rangers. You had Frank the lizard. You had the koala and the other characters that were in the poach thing. But then you also had Joanna McLeach's monitor. No, uh, Komodo dragon or something well, like yeah, that? Yeah, that's my first question is what was Joanna? Let me see if the Disney wiki shines okay. any light on that. Very soon after we meet her, he calls her a salamander. But then later on, he calls her a boa constrictor. He's calling her different animals to insult ah. her. Joanna is a monitor lizard. Okay. She also counts as the secondary antagonist. Yeah, I see that. She is quite <laughs> active as an antagonist. She does bad things. Now, the specific Wikipedia page for... For 
the monitor lizard points out that the commonly known monitor lizard is technically known as a goanna lizard. So Joanna is a goanna. Oh, that is interesting. I wonder if... Which is a if... subtle tie yeah. back to Thunderdome. Yeah. <laughs> wonder if that's how they chose the name Joanna. Oh, probably. My favorite, favorite, favorite Joanna scene is when McLeach is trying to cook himself some eggs. So he's got this box of eggs on the counter and Joanna wants the eggs. So she sneaks them one at a time. He catches on to what she's doing. So he like slides the box to the other side and she tricks him into sliding it back and forth a couple of times. Mm -hmm. It is framed so beautifully. We are just looking at them square on. There's a countertop in the scene, but there's no background. It's just the two of them doing this screwball Three Stooges comedy scene. Yeah. It is gold. What I love about it is that McLeach is making eggs because he needs protein so that way he can think better. And so he's formulating this plan. He's got his own thing that he's thinking through. And Joanna has her own thing that she is pestering him with. And I love how each of them have their own thing that they're doing. And they're just playing off of these little goals that they have in mind. And it's great because they are acting independently of each other, but also interacting together. And it really works for me. It does. There are a few moments, including this one in this movie, where the writing is really better than it should be. Yeah. This is a Disney sequel. <laughs> Disney sequels do not have the best track record for being quality stuff. No. And this one does stand out from the rest, but especially for writing like this. It's really something special. I really like Joanna as a secondary antagonist because she is such a henchman, but at the same time, she also presents her own feeling of menace and threat to the main characters, but she also has her own personality that really shines through in the portrayal. McLeach does have this threat of death over him, but in a rather broad way. Joanna has the threat of death in the immediate. Like, right now, I'm worried that she's going to eat Frank. Uh -huh. Right now, I'm worried that she's going to eat the eagle's eggs. Her threats are more immediate and therefore more menacing scarier oh yeah because i definitely see the conniving wily ways of mcleach as the scarier of the two but i can definitely see where you're coming from where she represents a more immediate threat so your fight and flight kicks in a lot sooner i think a lot of that depends on who is watching mm. i think kids may not understand the overarching threat of death that mclean has but they understand Joanna. She's bright. She's fast. She's got teeth and claws. And she has a tendency to show up at the worst moment. Mm -hmm. So for littler kids who are really going visual here, she is terrifying. Yeah. For kids who are a little bit older, who see McLean and see, oh, okay, he has the capability of actually killing Cody. I could definitely see where when you're little... Joanna is your biggest threat. And then when you get older, McLeach really fills that void mm -hmm. for nefarious villain. Which is some more great writing on the part of Disney to yeah. have those layers in a movie. Animated movies nowadays, they all have layers. Oh, yeah. They've definitely grown into that. Yeah. In my head, I don't know if this is true, but in my head, it kind of started with Shrek. Like a movie that appeals to kids in a kid's sort of way, appeals to grown-ups in a completely different sort of way, but that's now the standard. I don't really think that that was going on back in the 80s and 90s. You think with Shrek calling out Disney the way it did, that Disney heard that challenge and responded to it in kind? I think so. I think a lot has changed. I think animation has really grown in the last 20 years. And this movie definitely shows some signs of that. Oh my gosh, yes. That shot where they drop out of the bottom of the jumbo jet and Wilbur the Albatross is flying over Sydney 
with Bernard and Bianca on his back. And they fly between the two portions of the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. And when you get to a certain angle, you can see directly through the render of the Opera House that they made. And I'm like, I don't think you were supposed to be able to see the city behind the Opera House like that. I'm of two minds about that particular scene. It was egregious. It was so bad. Here's two thoughts. One, they were doing the best they could, and they didn't necessarily know any better. This was 1990, which means it was done in 1988 or 89. Do you think they were just trying it out because it was new cool technology? Yeah, and they like, all right, this is the best we can do, and it doesn't look half bad, so we're going to do it. Or they knew it looked half bad and were like, okay, we're going to go for it. It's artsy. Yep. And then when they do a reverse angle, when they're flying over the city proper and they're looking back at the opera house, then they're back to using a matte painting. It was startlingly different. I don't necessarily remember noticing if the flying through New York portion was CG But it would kind of make sense with the way that the camera swung. There were some really cool shots in this movie of them using the camera to catch different angles and actually move the camera within the scene. Mm -hmm. Which I feel is not something that you see a lot in animated movies of them tracking shots with the animated camera. Or the camera that would be there if it was live action. Right. I think that animation can do an awful lot. And with the Sydney Opera House thing, I wish that they had done it with animation rather than CG. Mm -hmm. I think they could have done better. I think they had this technology, like maybe it was the first time that they had used it and they spent a lot of money on it, so they needed to use it. Yeah. They're still five years out from doing Toy Story at this point. Yeah. If this shot of the Sydney Opera House is a sacrifice that we need to make (laughs) so that computer graphics can progress and become something like Toy Story and the really fantastic stuff that we have now. I'm willing to make that sacrifice. It was incredibly obvious, but it was quick. So Yeah, it's eh. not something you necessarily need to worry about remembering. No, but they could have done it better in animation. Yeah. Since we're talking about animation, I want to launch into favorite, least favorite things, because my favorite thing about this movie was the Disney level quality of animation. Hands down. This movie was beautiful to look at. It absolutely was. There are other studios when they do animals. I don't know. Turning animals into humans is really, really hard to animate. And there are movies out there, other studios, and even Disney sometimes, where when they do that, it just comes out weird. Yeah. Not this time. These mice are believable humans. I think it's because Disney is willing to create a world where their animals are exaggerated, where they are cartoony. The animals like the eagle, like the crocodiles, like some of the creatures don't talk because they are drawn in a very realistic style. But when you look at the koala and Frank, the frill-necked lizard and the kangaroos, like they're drawn in such a way that they can have those human emotions drawn on their face and they're exaggerated enough that you're not taken aback by the situation like some of those movies where they're live action movies and then they do the weird computer animated mouth moving thing it's just weird oh yeah i don't think we're ready for that yet but it was a very beautiful movie and of course being set at the outback gave lots of opportunity for flora and fauna that we in the northern hemisphere don't see a lot to say nothing of the scenes where cody was flying with the eagle it was massive never-ending story vibes for sure but just the way that they were able to draw this giant majestic creature flying through the air interacting with clouds and doing these huge sweeping shots of high altitude dives and swooping around and the wings were so gorgeously animated i can wholeheartedly agree with that appreciation my favorite part of this movie as a whole is absolutely Bernard. Mm -hmm. But when he's on his own, when Bernard is on his own, he is calm and collected. He knows what to do and he gets it done. I really like how he comes across this boar and he does the trick that he learned from Jake. And there was no pride in him using a technique that this supposed romantic rival showed him. Mm -hmm. 
And he used it to great effect. When he gets around Bianca, (laughs) the story is completely different because Bianca gets the calm, cool, collected aspect of their relationship. And he's left to bumble in the background. Bianca is so capable of everything that she does that she really steals the competency. Like, if you can imagine that a character's ability to function as a normal person, if that is a limited supply, and the more characters you throw into a situation, (laughs) the more it gets divvied up between the characters. Beyonce takes all of the competency and confidence when Bernard and her are together. And that tells me that, yeah, on her own, she is fully fledged out. She knows what she likes and what she wants to do and what she's capable of doing. And Bernard is just so head over heels for her that he can't help but screw up when he's around her. Yeah. So once he got separated from the group and had to fend for himself, I loved it so much. I loved when he got left behind at the nest and... It wasn't even presented to us that Joanna was going to be a problem with the eggs. Not directly. It was kind of indirect. But it was never made clear. Nobody had to tell Bernard, hey, Bernard, since you're stuck here at the nest, protect the eggs. Yeah. We didn't even get to see him have that realization. We didn't see the thought process. We didn't see him actually doing it. He just did it. He just saved those eggs. And it was quiet. It was competent. And it was effective and... That's what we want in our real life heroes. We don't need flash. We need results. Yeah. And that is the essence of Bernard. He is not flashy, but he gets it done. And it was incredibly satisfying. Plus, it's voiced by Bob Newhart. He has a very low, a bit monotone voice, which is very dependent upon context. When he's out with Bianca and Jake, he just sounds sullen. Mm. But once he was on his own, it was very calming. And the way that he spoke to Wilbur, which how have we not talked about Wilbur? Oh, we'll talk about Wilbur. Oh, okay. The way he spoke to Wilbur, Wilbur's freaking out on the ledge with the eggs. Wilbur's freaking out. And Bernard is like, Wilbur, Wilbur, you're going to do this. Wilbur, I need you to sit here and take care of the eggs. He doesn't raise his voice to him. He keeps it steady. That's when that monotone Ness really serves as an asset. Mm -hmm. I just like Bernard so much. (laughs) Yeah, he's pretty great. And pairing Bob Newhart as Bernard with Ava Gabor as Bianca, Ava Gabor has such a elegance to her tone. She has to play an elegant character because that's just what her voice is. Yeah. And I like how in situations of high stress, when Bianca and Bernard are together, Bernard is able to pull it out. He was the one that saw, oh, hey, we're on this giant truck track. Let's go between the treads and we'll be protected while we're underneath it. Yeah. That was Bernard. Yeah. It was good thinking. Since we're already talking about Bernard and Bianca, I think we need to launch into least favorite thing with what you didn't like about this movie. My least favorite thing was Jake. Not Jake the character, Jake the behavior. Jake as a romantic rival character? Yeah, as a romantic rival. I don't think it was needed. I'm okay with Jake as a romantic rival. The concept is fine. I didn't like the execution. Because in flirting with Bianca, he actively pushed Bernard away. Which meant that Bernard, by default, got put in unsafe situations. Because Jake put him there Mm. because Jake wanted to spend time with Bianca. That really drove me nuts. And it was all to no end. And honestly, Jake was okay with that. Once it became clear to Jake that Bernard was the guy, he was totally fine with it. Totally fine with it. It was not even a thing. Like, I can see why they put it in there because this is a sequel. You spend the first movie establishing the relationship between Bernard and Bianca In the second movie, you add some sort of tripping point Mm -hmm. for that relationship. Yes. And that was Jake. I really liked Jake's design as the little kangaroo rat that he was. Yeah. Is that what he was? A kangaroo rat? I think so. Okay. He had the elongated feet and the bushy tail and things like that. I assumed he was a kangaroo mouse. I don't know what the distinguishing characteristics are between kangaroo rats or mice or whatever. I don't know. I know I have the Disney wiki right in front of me, but I don't. 
We're, I don't want to look it up. Yeah. I don't care that much. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I liked him as a character. I liked his design. I could have done without all of the relentless flirting that he was doing yeah. with Bianca. Yeah. I did really like his design. I yeah. like that that he was an Australian version of them. If they had had an Australian desk at the RAS meeting at the beginning of the film, he probably would have been the person sitting at the desk. Although, it wouldn't have made much sense for him to be there. Like, I don't know how the RAS works. Like, it seems to be like a little rodent United Nations thing. Right. So why wasn't there an Australia desk? Yeah. Why was it the United States and Hungary that got assigned to it? Why did they have to go so far afield to ask for help? Yeah. That's a really good question. Why is there only a global organization? Why doesn't Australia have the mouse version of Rangers? Yeah. They needed some sort of way to get Bernard and Bianca to Australia. I can understand that. Yes. But why couldn't it be a, oh, here we are at the RAS headquarters in Australia we're understaffed, or this is a special situation. We need experts. Because yeah. I'm pretty sure the first Rescuers movie also deals with a kidnapping. I believe so, yes. I think that's their deal, which I don't know how, since we're talking about the RAS, why is this kidnapping special? When the guy goes in front of the group of delegates, it's like, we have a situation. A child has been kidnapped. I'm like... Really? Oh my gosh, a child in the world has been kidnapped? Oh I feel like hundreds of children are kidnapped every, every day. Every day. Like, why is this one special? Because a mouse was there? Because a mouse reported it? <laughs> are you seriously telling me that there aren't mice all over the world who are witnessing children getting abducted all the time? If these mice are so dang competent and capable, then maybe they should focus on... The child slave trafficking in yeah. the world. Like, come on. This like, is one kid. Where are the mouse delegates from the Sudan or something like that? Right. Children are being kidnapped and pressed into military service. Not even service. It's military slavery. But Yeah. So I there's do, a lot going on in the I world. do have big questions about why this kid. Yeah. Why this case. But, you know. <laughs> It's a Disney thing. We had to get them there. Right. We had to get them there. There has to be one case so that we can have a movie, so that we can have a plot. Mm. So that's fine. <laughs> what was your least favorite part? My least favorite part was the criminal misuse of John Candy as the albatross Wilbur. I can totally get behind this. He did not make my least favorite part, but I did have a note Asking the question, is John Candy doing a John Candy bit? Oh, probably. But they introduce Wilbur. He is with Bernard and Bianca as they travel to Australia. And as soon as they get to Australia, they literally shove him in a van. And he spends half of his on-screen time stuck in a van doing shtick. And he would have been so helpful in the rest of that movie. And they purposely sideline him. And I'm like... You got John Candy. Put him to work with more than just bumbling around a hospital setting while he's tortured by mice, who I think are very dubious in their medical credentials. Oh, yeah. That whole thing was weird. Yeah. It was weird. And I see why they had to do it. Because if he was fully capable and with them the whole time, then it would have removed... The three of them, Bianca, Jake, and Bernard, going from animal to animal yeah. to traverse the distance. Because Wilbur would have just flown them to where they needed to go. I can understand wanting to give Bernard the opportunity to learn how to deal with the outback creatures and then exercise that for himself. Showing that willingness to adapt to his environments. I appreciate that. But it really bothered me. Like... Wilbur was such a fun character. He had a lot of joie de vivre about him. And I would have liked to have seen him do more. And then when Bernard finally catches up to Wilbur at the end of the movie, and Bernard is like, okay, you just 
sit here on these eggs. I'm going to go after McLeach. And I'm like, oh, gee, if you're chasing after McLeach, wouldn't it be really handy to have a bird to carry you there? Yeah. And then they could work together to help this situation out? Yeah. I don't like how they misused Wilbur because I feel that they misused him. I agree. And thinking back on it, like I said in our opener, that I have specific memories of specific scenes and moments in this movie. And in hindsight, they were all of Wilbur. I didn't remember Cody. I didn't remember McLeach. I didn't remember Joanna. I didn't remember any of that stuff. What stuck with me from viewing this as a child was Wilbur. He is very memorable. And kids love him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree. And it wasn't the hospital scenes that I remembered. I remembered him flying from New York to Australia. I remember the whole runway bit. Yes. I remember him sitting on the eggs at the end. Like, some really funny stuff. Yeah. But, hey, if the biggest misstep of a movie is that we didn't get more of one character, that kind of tells you the rest of the movie is pretty okay. It is pretty okay. And, you know, my qualms with it too are relatively minor so i think the overall vibe is that we really enjoyed the movie do you have any final thoughts or recommendations you'd like to make here at the end my recommendation is to see the movie i think it has very broad appeal and i think it does appeal more to kids than to adults but it tries to appeal to adults a bit and so i can appreciate that and i think our listeners would too but If you are stuck at home with your kids, it's a great one to sit down with the family. Mm. Going off that idea, I really appreciate how this movie is very light on the loud and obnoxious things you usually see in kids' movies. Honestly, the most obnoxious character in this movie is Frank, the lizard, and he's in one scene, and that's it. You don't have any ridiculous over-the-top earwormy to the point of annoyance songs to worry about you don't have to worry about it being a two-hour thing that's going to eat up half your day sort of situation i mentioned at the top of this that it doesn't overstay its welcome and that's one of the huge pluses about this movie there is a lot to love and it doesn't stay too long it is the friend who comes to stay on your couch for the weekend and then they leave early on sunday afternoon (laughs) You know, it's not like they're coming into town for the weekend and they stay until Tuesday. It's not that situation. You could arguably just put this movie on loop in front of a kid and it won't drive you crazy while you're trying to do whatever you're doing in the background. Oh, not at all. So I will echo what you said, Julia, and say that if you haven't watched this movie in a while and you've got kiddos that you've got to entertain, by all means, throw it on there because... It is a fun time beginning to end. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. The Rescuers Down Under is presented by Walt Disney. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link. Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time.